welcome to the Top Order Podcast. Just Stu and Baldy here tonight on the eve of one of the biggest sporting events on the New Zealand calendar, the Test Series against Australia. There'll be a bit of looking back and a bit of looking forward as we preview this trans-Tasman clash. And Neil Wagner, the man, the myth, the legend, he's retired. I still can't, can't quite can't believe it, Baldy, but I'm ready to charge in off the long run, just like he would want us to. We'll have all that and more right after the swish. <laughs> I've run out of sound effects. Honestly, the slider on this web program that we use for our recordings, the, the little audio slider that's normally like nice and big on a nice big analog soundboard is about it's about that wide. And even with it's terrible to work with. Horrible. Otherwise not a bad record piece of recording software. So you get a random swish from me. That's all right. That's all right. Before we get kicked off the uh, the host server after you slated them, we may as well start the show. Baldy, you did agree that I could open tonight because, as I mentioned in the intro, one of New Zealand cricket's greats retired from the international game yesterday here in New Zealand time. We're recording this on, on Wednesday night. And uh, although I think most Black Caps fans probably knew deep down that this day was coming soonish, I'm still battling with the fact that you know, we won't see another Neil Wagner celebration wearing the whites and the silver fern. I, I think the um, all the stats that have been going around, obviously, the last few days, 260 test wickets at 27, strike rate of 52, which people are saying is uh, second only to Hadley in terms of strike rate. But I, I'm sure that must be there must be a, a category there in terms of number of wickets, because I think Bondi has one in the late 30s or, or early 40s. But still, look, it's a fantastic record. I, I think it's actually even made more remarkable by the fact that the best things about Neil Wagner and the things that we loved as New Zealand cricket fans were everything that doesn't show up on the scorebook. You know, the passion, the energy, the desire, the determination, all of those things that he brought to the team every single time that he stepped onto that field. I just really don't think... You could ever find someone who has tried harder and left more of themselves out there than he has over the course of his career. So, you know, look, Baldy, honestly, I could talk uninterrupted for the next 10 minutes about Wagner and what he's kind of meant to New Zealand cricket during during really what's been a special time for us as New Zealand fans. But maybe just jump in and give me an Australian perspective on, on what you've observed over the years. Yeah, I... It's an, it's an interesting one, Stu, because my first and, and maybe my strongest memory of Neil Wagner was that uh, New Zealand tour to Australia, where New Zealand were beaten comprehensively, and I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss that in, our, in the next half an hour when we talk about this upcoming test series here in New Zealand. But Neil Wagner was really the guy that earned himself a lot of respect from Australian cricket fans, just from his attitude and his willingness to take it to the opposition, even when his team were being were being beaten uh, as they were in those Australian conditions. So to, to me, that wasn't peak Neil Wagner because we've seen so many good performances from him outside of Australia. But that was the first series that really came to mind for me when I reflected back on his career. And I just wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned there, Stu, that I know that you're a big Neil Wagner fan and I know that there are many fans of this podcast that are also Neil Wagner fans. But do you think that in the general cricket fan public in New Zealand, Neil Wagner will go down as a New Zealand cricket great? I mean, he should, but do you think he will? 
I think so. Yeah, look, I mean, it's interesting because he came into the attack when we had Southie and, you know, he played alongside Southie and Bolt, who, you know, like Wagner's going to go down as the fifth, or currently he has taken the fifth most wickets of all time for New Zealand. So, I mean, that alone, I think, stands him right up there. I think his average is, um, you know, equal or better than Southie and Bolt. It certainly was at one point. I don't, you know, the last year, 18 months for Neil Wagner, his average probably hasn't been as as good as he would have liked it. But yeah, I think so. I think people who actually genuinely follow the game, they will they will know the contribution that Neil's made and, and they'll know that those tough moments when nothing was happening, that's when Neil Wagner, you know, proved his worth for New Zealand. You know, bowling through two fractured toes to help New Zealand beat Pakistan at the Bay Oval with an 11-over marathon spell when nothing was was happening. You know, he, the huge spell last year against at the Basin against England with, that ended with Jimmy Anderson caught down the league side with with one run to spare, you know. And, and he's in, look, he's going to be, you know, in all the pictures when that World Test Championship banner and the, the scenes of them celebrating on the sideline, he's going to be in all of those photos. And look, I think... I don't think you find a New Zealand cricket fan around, certainly at the moment, that that doesn't love Neil Wagner and what he's given to this side. So, yeah, I think he will be. You know, I, I don't. I try not to throw the word legend out there, you know, too lightly. And but I, I genuinely think, like I said, fifth most wickets of of all time for for New Zealand in Test cricket. So, mm. yeah, I, I mm. think he deserves that status. I completely agree. I'm, I'm glad I teed you up for that because I completely agree and I wanted to hear it from you just so it didn't sound like um, me being a bit of a Neil Wagner homer. But Neil Wagner did the hard work and made things happen. Not just did the hard work. There are lots of bowlers over the years that are prepared to run in to the wind, run uphill, bowl, you know, the, the tough overs. But not only did he bowl the tough overs, but he made things happen for New Zealand when nothing was happening. And in an attack where you had really good skill bowlers in Southie and Bolt that could make things happen when the conditions were conducive to swing or seam or whatever. Neil Wagner, who let's be let's be fair, came into the side with all of that same skill set. Yeah. You know, he was the guy that New Zealand turned to when the chips were down and, and he converted everything for New Zealand in that in that scenario. So yeah, I raise a glass to Neil Wagner, a tremendous career for New Zealand and you know look it's a career that we should look back on with tremendous fondness because he's the kind of guy that I think um, if you were a a traditional stereotypical New Zealander you know number eight wire she'll be right died in the wool kind of fella or, or lady then Neil Wagner's a person that I think you identify with first and foremost in that New Zealand site. Oh absolutely yeah couldn't couldn't agree with that more echo all of those sentiments, great spell from Neil Wagner. And uh, honestly, look, thanks thanks to him for, for all the memories, great memories that he's given to New Zealand cricket. I do want to set the scene a little bit for this upcoming series and, and kind of get your thoughts on on what's at stake for the two teams and, and even the fan bases. But I, I think that the Wagner news probably does segue nicely into some of the squad news that's happening around at the moment. So maybe we do just tick off that first. For New Zealand now, that means no Wagner, which adds to Kyle Jamieson's injury. And so that means that the bowling attack looks to be Southie, Henry, Willow Rourke, and either Mitchell Santner or Scott Kugeline. And I was reading a little bit, I like to kind of get a sense of, you know, what what other people think of, uh, you know, how the, the series is, is going to play out. And 
when I was reading the Crick Info uh, preview of the series, it called it a formidable bowling uh, New Zealand bowling attack. Does that bowling attack now with without you know Jameson without? I mean, we know that Bolt, we knew Bolt wasn't going to be there, but you know, even just Wagner on paper, mm. Southey, Henry, O'Rourke, and yes, Santner or Kugeline. Does that strike fear into you from an Australian perspective? I think the question that's probably worth asking is what questions can that attack pose against Australia? And if the answer to that is you've got guys who can swing the ball early in the innings and challenge the inside edge of Steve Smith's bat in particular, he's developed a pretty big front pad of late, even though he'll tell you he's opening um, the batting averaging 80. <laughs> I think if you can bowl the ball quick and get it to bounce, you can trouble Manus Lubbershane. And we don't know what we're going to get from the other parts of the Australian order. And I think we'll get onto that in more detail in a sec. So I think if there's a weakness in the Australian lineup at the moment, it's in that batting, in, particularly in the top four. And so if New Zealand are able to challenge Australia in those opening overs, and we've seen some pretty impressive stuff from Willow Rourke, we know what we're going to get from Southie and Henry. The question mark is who's going to be that fourth bowler and what are they going to give you? Are they going to give you out-and-out genuine pace and bounce, uh, which I think could be uh, challenging for the top three in particular, or are we going to get control from Mitchell Santner? Those are the big questions. And I'm not sure whether Australia will be having too many sleepless nights thinking about Scott Kugeline or preparing for Scott Kugeline, but I think if, if he's going to be effective, he's going to have to bowl quick and he's going to have to bowl with extra bounce at the basin uh, because that's going to be, A, a point of difference for the New Zealand attack, and, two, it's going to really challenge those Australian openers at the top edge of their bat, and I think that's where they're going to be caught out. Yeah, I, I really think that they New Zealand's plan going into this game, I think, is was certainly and probably still is at this point, was to play Mitchell Santner, and, and you know they, uh, Gary Stead talked about in the press conference that uh, he felt like they missed a trick a little bit in that second test against South Africa by not picking Santner, uh, that that, you know, in hindsight was was probably an error. And I think that that's the, the main plan. However, the pitch has been apparently under covers all day today. You know, they, they haven't actually seen the wicket. They haven't been able to prepare. So they're going to go in and, you know, it looked green two, day, two or three days ago when we did see it. I mean, New Zealand pitches, for, for anyone who is not in New Zealand, New Zealand pitches are very misleading. They often look very, very green. They look the same color as the outfield. And then they actually play all right. They're hard underneath. The, it, mm. Unless the condition, overhead conditions are conducive to swing, then you know you often just see the first hour is challenging with the new ball, and then it does flatten out a bit. It's certainly not the conditions that you know we used to see where you know visiting sides would come here and get bowled out for 200. So the, the idea... The idea of trying to play, you know, thinking that it's going to be super, super bowler friendly is is probably a bit of a myth now. But still, mm. uh, you know, I, I think that does bring Kugeline into consideration more than he might have. But yeah, look, we, we'll see tomorrow in terms of what they do. For the Australians, I feel like this the 11 is just pretty straightforward, isn't it? Kawaja, Smith, Labashane, Green, Head, Marsh, Kerry, Cummins, Stark, Lyon, Hazelwood. Uh, is there any scenario where that's not the lineup, barring injury for for both sides for both tests? Australia have named their, their their eleven for the first test, and that is the eleven. It's the same eleven that lost in the last test of the summer against the West Indies, and it's the same bowling attack that we've taken all the way through the Australian summer. 
The batting lineup remains unchanged from the West Indies series with Smith replacing David Warner at the top of the order and Cameron Green coming back in at number four. So no changes for Australia. Uh, It remains to be seen what we're going to get out of that batting order. I'd like to dive more into that at some point during this pod uh, because I think there are still some big question marks around the top four, Usman Kawaja notwithstanding. Uh, So that's going to be a key uh, challenge for the series, a key matchup, if you like, is what are those four bowlers for New Zealand going to be able to do against the top four in particular for Australia? Uh, because I think that's our Achilles heel at the moment. And the only other squad news, I, I guess, is that uh, unfortunately today, Devin Conway was ruled out with his thumb injury. I, I sort of get the impression, I, you know, I, I hate to think, but I, it feels like maybe he'll miss the second game as well. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll obviously talk a bit more before then. But obviously the fact that he hadn't been able to, to hold a bat before, you know, since the injury properly, even though he was padded up and kind of looked like he was, was ready to go, uh, you know, at the end of that T20, but obviously wasn't really worth his uh, him going out at that point. But I think, you know, they've already said Conway injury means a straight swap. Will Young comes in, who, you know, played in the last test against South Africa, looked very good, I thought, batting, you know, getting 60-odd and, and got, you know, 30-odd, 30 30-odd, 30 I think, in the first innings and actually looked really good again until he kind of got uh, caught up in the fact that he was starting to bat with the tail and, and, and hit out. But now he goes back up to opening against Cummins and Stark and, and Hazelwood and things. So things will obviously a bit be a bit more challenging than uh, than that Australian attack. But I think before we dive into the, the key matchups and things, I, I do want to to get your sense of uh, kind of what this series means because I said it in the intro, This this potentially this doesn't feel like a big deal around the world or, or maybe even in Australia, but for New Zealand fans, this is huge. Like this is, you know, we just don't play Australia. They, they last came here in 2016, which was... Brendan McCullum's final test, you know, scored the fastest test 100, but New Zealand still lost by seven wickets after losing by an innings in Wellington. You referenced before that 2019, you know, 2020 series where, you know, we were doing the pod at that time and and me and Raj, we talked openly about thinking New Zealand had a shot against Australia at that time. And, you know, the margins were 296, 247, 279. And, you know, apart from Trent Bolt bowling Joe, uh, Joe Burns in the first over of that, test first test I, I don't think you know New Zealand was was really in any of those games you know the whole way through and you know you have to go back to 2015 to even find the last time New Zealand drew a test against Australia 2011 to the last time we won in Hobart before that it was 1993 so like home series against Australia are rare wins are even more rare so does I guess for, for me this is huge what does it mean for you? Because is this actually any more meaningful than, uh, you know, the series that you just played against the West Indies? I know it's not as big as the Ashes, but where does it kind of rank in in, uh, in your scenario as a fan? Oh, for me, it's hugely important. And, I, and I'll give you three reasons. A, the Australian, the wider Australian sporting landscape is hyper competitive between Australia and New Zealand, always has been, always will be. But, Australian sporting teams don't enjoy 
by and large, a tremendous amount of success against New Zealand, particularly when we turn our attention at this time of year to the winter codes, uh, rugby in particular. It's been a long, long time since Australia has beaten New Zealand at rugby. We certainly haven't beaten them for a long, long time in this country. So for the Australian cricket team to come to New Zealand and perform well and win is hugely important for the Australian sporting psyche. And as we know, the Australian male ego, the Australian male psyche is is heavily connected to sport and heavily connected to both those codes, cricket and rugby. So if Australia is not successful against New Zealand at rugby, and we haven't been in the Bledisloe Cup since about 2001, um, there is an increased import in beating New Zealand at cricket um, from a macro sporting perspective. Let's turn our attention to the Test Championship, reason number two. New Zealand are at the top of the sport at the Test Championship table at the moment, I believe. Is that right? Australia are a third thereabouts, right? So there are big points on offer in this series and a chance for Australia to leapfrog New Zealand um, and take away points from a top three rival or for New Zealand to extend their lead in the World Test Championship and take away points uh, from a fellow World Test Championship finalist. So... Those are the World Test Championship permutations that are on offer here. It's a bit like the old four-point fixture if you're referring to a you know a, a league game or a union game mid-table when you're both battling for a playoff spot and you're playing each other six v seven or seven v eight. You know it's the old proverbial four-point game. This is a forty-eight-point series, if you like, <laughs> or whatever the series are worth these days. Yeah. They're worth more. When, you, when you're playing against a team that has, has final aspirations as New Zealand do. And if we're going to keep up with India, who've just gone ahead 3-1 against England, then one of these teams is going to take some big points away from that. D, at a micro level, there are still some questions being asked over this Australian batting lineup. We saw... And I don't know if you read much of the read much of the Murdoch Press in Australia. There have been six or seven articles detailing how statistically this has been the worst batting performance by an Australian batting unit in the last forty five years. There's about seven or eight articles on the Murdoch Press um, on the xsports.com.au. Um, choose your words wisely, Baldy. <laughs> it is it is a concern. It is a genuine concern. Let's have a look at the stats from the summer. Warner averaged 49, Marsh averaged 54, Warner's now retired, Smith averaged 44, but it wasn't a pleasant 44. They're the only Australian batters to have managed to to average 40 in that summer in five tests against sides that Australia should have beaten and made lots of runs against at home. Labuschagne only made 226 at an average of 28. Head only made 200 runs at 25 across the summer. Those two guys had a lean summer and there's some scrutiny on their on their um, performance, not their role on the side and whether or not they should be there, but on their performance. And, you know, Alex Carey remains under pressure despite averaging 30 in the Australian summer because there are expectations that he's a better player than that and should be in, you know, that 35, 36 range from an average perspective. So at the micro level within the team, there are some concerns around that Australian batting. Not many people are talking about the bowling from an Australian point of view, but I think this is going to be an interesting examination for Australia's bowlers because I think everyone expects Australia's bowlers to rock up in, you know, friendly conditions and do really, really well. My question is, what happens if they don't? What are Pat Cummins' plans B, C and D? And are they going to be effective? Pat Cummins has tremendous plans A, maybe plan A1, A2. 
But we saw in that West Indies series and a little bit against Pakistan as well, particularly against the tail, and I know this has been a weakness we've talked about on this podcast, Australia goes short to the tail early and often and for extended periods of time. Are they going to do that here against New Zealand and is it going to be effective? I think mileage may vary. I think there are one or two batters in that New Zealand tail that might be susceptible to a bit of short pitch stuff, but there are also batters that could hit you for 20 or 30 runs quite quickly against that mode of bowling and could potentially take a test match away from Australia if it's a low-scoring affair. So these are some questions I think Australian fans will be asking of their team. There are high expectations on Australia here in this series against New Zealand for the reasons that you've mentioned. Australia have a good record against New Zealand historically. Small sample size in this country over the last eight years. Some of those attack bowlers haven't played a test in New Zealand. Yeah, so this amazing. will be a first this will be a first for them, right? So there are some advantages for New Zealand going into this series. Definitely. Now Australia have played well in the T twenties. That form goes out the window as far as I'm concerned. There are some big advantages from a conditions perspective and a knowledge perspective that New Zealand have going into this series. But Australia coming in probably have a better bowling attack on paper, have a good batting lineup on paper. But I think there are some cracks in that batting lineup and it remains to be seen whether Australia can pull together some consistent performances because I think they need to go big against New Zealand in the first innings. And really, they must be thinking about, depending on the conditions, but they must be thinking about, we want to go big against New Zealand early on in the series and put them under a lot of pressure and start to see if there are any of those scars from previous encounters that start to rear their head. Well, that's been the formula for, you know, recent, you know, as I say, it hasn't been that many recent tests, but, you know, thinking back to that 2019 series, that, that is, has been the formula for Australia. Bat first, get a big score, and then New Zealand's kind of just out of it from the outset. You hit on a few of the, the key matchups that, that I want to dive into, but just quickly, like the, New Z- the, the Australian mindset, I'm fascinated because I feel like, I know we've talked about this a little bit already in previous episodes, but this Australia side, I feel like it's proof that it's a quality, quality side. They've won the World Cup in ODIs. They're, you know, not current holder of the T20 World Cup, but they, you know, they won the previous one. They're the T20, you know, they're the World Test Championship holders at the moment. But still, I feel like not just you, you know, the media in general and the fans in general still have a lot of questions about this side. Is this, you know, maybe uh, like, is that a mindset shift in, in, you know, fandom of Cricket Australia? Why is this happening? Um, I think Australia has received a lot of plaudits under Pat Cummins and rightfully they should because they have won big series. They have won trophies. They have played well. They have... Um, re-emerged from the nadiriest of the nadirs, and I won't mention the country, but 2018 listeners will know, viewers will know what I'm talking about. They've emerged from that. Expectations are growing about this Australian team, as they should, because they've got some quality guys in there. But if you have a look at the stats over the summer and you have a look at some of those key indicators like how many times did Australia bowl New Zealand, uh, West Indies and Pakistan out, having got them five for not many – didn't happen a lot, right? How many times did Australia go on and really cash in when they got a bit of an advantage against sides that they should dominate? Australia didn't do that. So the criticism comes from Australia, yes, they are winning, but they are good enough to dominate sides. They are good enough 
you know, man for man across that lineup to put in really commanding performances. And we don't see that from Australia often enough. Okay, let's have a look at the microcosm of this T20 series. Australia got out of jail in that first T20 and they played pretty well in the second T20 and they, and they won a rain-affected match. They're always a bit of a lottery anyway. But only in one out of those three games did Australia put together a commanding performance. And then if you break that down, Australia only really had 10 really good overs of batting out of 20. They lost seven for not many in their batting. So you know that's where people start to look at Australia and put the microscope on them is you see the potential there. You see the ability to put command performances together. Excellent world-class sides do that on a regular basis. Australian sides of the 90s and early 2000s did that on a regular basis. The players in this team may be not as talented across the board as those sides of the 90s, but there's plenty of talent there. There is plenty of experience in there. There is enough experience in that side and enough talent to put together command performances, but they don't. They let sides back into games. They get into winning positions and and don't take full advantage of those situations. That's the criticism that I've had of Australia. And I think that a lot of people have because Australia can do that. They have the capability to do that. Fans want them to do that, but they're not. I think that's a really good answer in in terms of clarifying for me. And, And just that you guys hold them to such a high standard. You know, that Australian cricket side has, has just over the years been so, so dominant. And, you know, even just we talked about the the individual matchup against New Zealand, that the standard that you guys hold them up to is is probably the same way as the All Blacks, right, here in New Zealand. That, Absolutely. You know, the, the All Blacks play a game and they win, they win, but they don't win by enough and they start getting criticised. So, yeah, look, I think that's that's probably put it into perspective. We, we talk about the key matchups all the time when we do these previews. I get the sense from you that you think, and, and one of the things that I've got down is, I think it's crucial that New Zealand take early wickets in these games. You know, all, all of the innings, all of their bowling innings. I get the sense you feel like the top order for Australia is crucial to, to how these tests are going to pan out. Absolutely. Because Australia's strength at the moment has been 5-6. Has been Travis Head and Mitchell Marsh. If those guys come in early on in the innings, Australia are three for 30, four for 45, four for 50, whatever, very, very difficult for them to come out and dominate the game. Yes, they have the ability to counter-attack and take games away from New Zealand, but Australia have to earn the right to, to put those guys in a position where they can come in against a ball that's not doing a lot. Okay, we've taken the juice out of the wicket. We've really gone okay, if we can get through to 200 for four, we can get to 400 from there because Head and um, Marsh and and so on, they can really go and do that quite quickly. Australia must earn the right to do that. And I think the big concern is still, even though he's averaging 80, does Steve Smith have the technique to resist uh, new ball bowling like Southie and Henry who are going to get the best out of these conditions here in New Zealand. He's grown a bit of a big front pad over the last year or so, Steve Smith. We saw him in the T20s. He didn't really look like he was um, getting going. We know that test matches are a different scenario. I, I, I get it. I understand that t- test match is not T20, but just the way that he was hit on the pad a couple of times in those T20s just tells me that maybe not everything is quite right for Steve Smith. I hope I'm wrong and I hope he comes out and scores a fluent 100, you know, and gets the body in line and gets his head and his hands in the right place to consistently hit the ball where he wants to. But that's the concern for me. The concern for me around Manus is he nicks off 
playing outside off stump when he doesn't need to. And that's where a guy who can bowl at 140, 145 plus can make life difficult for him. And then all of a sudden, Australia are two for 30 and in comes Cameron Green. And we don't really know what kind of test cricketer Cameron Green is in those situations yet. We have faith that he's going to be a tremendous cricketer for Australia in the long term. Everyone can see the talent. But what is he going to be able to do when he's faced with a fired-up Matt Henry, a fired-up Tim Southey, a fired-up Willow Rourke, and Australia are two for 30 on day one at the Basin? That's going to be the real test for Cameron Green and whether or not he has got the ability to convert all of his talent into match-winning big hundreds where he's knuckling down and he's seeing off those bowlers. We've seen Cameron Green play tremendous innings when he's on top. Let's see what he's able to do when he's under pressure and when he's required to make good decisions and not throw his wicket away. Those are the questions that I think still haven't been answered about that Australian top four. And if we only get 25 runs and innings from Travis Head, all of a sudden we're in a bit of trouble. So there is an opportunity for New Zealand to take advantage of that batting lineup for Australia. New Zealand have their concerns as well, don't get me wrong, but there are some risks there from an Australian top order perspective. I think that your point about um, New Zealand or the Aussie batters feeling a bit less comfortable or looking a bit less comfortable when that pace gets up there is is probably, you know, that I think that is what the New Zealand selectors will probably be thinking if they are seriously considering Kugeline because, you know, I, I think when you... Even just you looked at that T20 series, I went to that T20 on Friday and you could see it as soon as Lockie was bowling and Ben Sears were bowling, it was just a different, like that, you know, Travis Head was smashing bolt all over the place, it will, albeit some of those were, you know, flying off the edge and, and going for, for six as they do at Eden Park. But as soon as the pace got that, you know, 5Ks quicker, which, you know, it doesn't seem that much quicker, but the difference, you know, anyone who's played cricket knows that once you're getting up to those elite paces, that extra 5K from, you know, 135 to 140, 145 to 140, 140 to 145, they they escalate. It's almost like exponential in terms of how that feels to you as a, as a batter, at least, for, at least for me batting at 11 it was anyway. But, you know, I did feel like those pace, that extra pace. And, you know, I think that's probably... The, the big hope that we have that Willow Rourke can kind of deliver that because I've got exactly the same thing in my notes about, you know, I said New Zealand needs to take wickets up the top because, you know, when I look at Head and Marsh at, at five and six, I just get nightmares thinking about what could happen if the two of them, you know, are in at 300 for four and it, it just gets really ugly from New Zealand there in, in, in all of these nightmare scenarios. So, yeah, I, I think that initial matchup and the way – that, you know, the way that the toss goes, the way that the sort of overhead conditions, because I think that swing is going to be crucial for, for New Zealand in terms of how Southie in particular is able to to manage those early overs and even Henry, Matt Henry and Southie together. If they can extract some swing and get the, find the edge of Smith, find the edge of Labuschagne, who I agree is, is very, seems very susceptible at the moment to an edge, to fishing out. If they get going... You know, it, it's such a different scenario from, you know, 50 for three to, you know, 200 or 150 for three. And I know that sounds a very obvious thing to say, uh, but no, it, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree. Because if Australia get through, I'm confident that Labuschagne and Smith in particular can go big. Mm. You know, the danger for New Zealand is if Manus gets through the first 30 or 40 balls, I don't know what his conversion rate's like, but in my head, the narrative for me is. If Manus gets in and he's got a guy like Kawaja batting with him, 
Manus can go on and do big things. And he can really be the guy that can stall and, and thwart and be a thorn in the side of that New Zealand attack, particularly if the ball stops moving. And if he's getting a ball that's straight up and down on 135, his decision-making in those scenarios is almost impeccable. It's really good. It's when the ball moves and it's a, you know, 140, 145 plus that he's really challenged. You get him in a scenario where the, the pace starts coming down a little bit and it's straight up and down and, and he can bat for two days at both of those venues and, and and bat Australia into commanding positions. So that's the danger for New Zealand. If he gets in and he faces 40 or 50 balls, look out, because he'll be there for a long, long time. Let's transition over to, to New Zealand's batting now. You look up and down that lineup, there's no Conway now going to be in the side. Do you think those Australian bowlers are, are now, you know, such an experienced attack? Are they looking at that lineup in, you know, maybe conditions that are at least a little bit more conducive to to seam bowling than they might find in Australia? And are they mm. just licking their lips at the prospect of, of facing this New Zealand attack? I think Stark will be licking his lips, thinking about well, if there is going to be swing for Southy and Henry then I'm going to get those same conditions. And we've seen when Stark is able to swing the ball, particularly in the first couple of overs, he's super dangerous. So I think the barometer, the bellwether measure for whether or not Stark is going to be super dangerous in this series is can he get his radar right in the first over of the game? I think that he'll be looking to rip Will Young's pad off and rip rip his off stump out of the ground in the first over of the test match if he can. And, you know, guys like Hazelwood and Cummins, they're just going to put the ball in the shoebox all day and they're going to challenge the decision-making of a guy like Tom Latham all day. It's no secret that Kane Williamson is the big wicket, but I think Australia will feel like in that opening partnership in particular, there's opportunities to take early wickets there. And if they can get Kane in early, they can get Rutchen in early in the first six or seven overs, they can really do the same level of damage to New Zealand as I fear that New Zealand are going to be able to do to Australia. So that's really where Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood will be absolutely licking their lips. Lyon will be equally as excited to bowl in those conditions as well because when he gets bounced and he gets a little bit of turn and there's stuff on offer for the quick bowlers, often he can benefit from that as well. And he can bowl a lot more attacking lines. Um, and, And you know this, Stu, so I'd love you to talk to it, but I feel like he's way more effective when he's targeting off stump and outside from over the wicket and challenging both edges of the bat as opposed to that role that he's played so wonderfully for Australia but to me is not as dangerous is when he's coming around the wicket and he's pitching the ball on off and trying to hit you know off and middle stump those kinds of lines so you know if there's a bit of seam movement there's a bit of condition friendly conditions for uh, for Nathan Lyon I'd like to see him really you know go outside off stump and be super attacking. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does because uh, you know you, we saw mentioned it in the last episode when we talked about New Zealand and sat, series against South Africa, the, the way that Dane Peake bowled and and he, you know, I think that Lyon will look at that and think I've got a serious chance against this this New Zealand side because the way they played Dane Peake was was pretty poor to be honest. They were sort of um, you know maybe it comes from you know not really having seen a bowler before and, and not really having firm plans against him but there was a lot of just kind of weak shots you know just sort of chipping it to fielders and uh, a lot of you know a bit of court court uh, bat pad you know genuinely just missing a few of them uh, I mean credit to Pete he bowled really really well but I think that what he did well at times when, when New Zealand looked like they were going okay is he did come around the wicket and bowled re- sort of at middle and leg to the right-handers 
and actually made them sort of made them play every ball, but you know be defending it too short leg, too you know mm. too short catches in there. So you know I I agree with you. I think Lyon you know will be is is a more threatening bowler when he's trying to go through the gate. I I'm, I hope from a New Zealand point of view that we get through those seamers and it actually comes you know it come, there comes points in this test where Nathan Lyon is actually going to have to bowl as a wicket taker. I think. I'm trying to think back to those 2019 games. I think he actually did reasonably well, but generally mm. because he was kind of picking up, you know, he was coming in when damage was already done. And, you know, he he's a quality, quality bowler. You, you just look at his record and you see that and see the way that he is able to bowl well in all sorts of different conditions. He's not, you know, he that that's, stands to the fact that he's picked – He's an automatic selection pretty much for Australia, you know, even at home, even, you know, wherever he goes around the world, they, they try to find a spot for Nathan Lyon. And I think your point about your point about Williamson, oh, look, it's not an original thought to say that Kane Williamson's going to be important to, to New Zealand's chances in this series. But I do think it's, you know, it really is hard to see a scenario where New Zealand does well without his runs. You know, you like last couple of episodes, People can listen to me rattling off Kane Williamson's stats, but I think you know, outside of all of those stats and the, the contribution, I think that the way he fits with the rest of our lineup, the way we've sort of built our lineup now with Ravindra and Mitchell and Phillips and Blundell in that four, five, six, seven spots, the way he bats with all of those players and, and the freedom that he's going to be able to give them if he's standing at the other end, particularly the younger guys like Ravindra and, and Phillips, I think that when they are in the we, you know, we saw it with Rutchen when Rutchen got the double hundred against South Africa. You know, Rutchen couldn't stop talking about how great it was to bat with Kane and how he kept mm. saying to Kane, "No, you're the best, Kane," and all of these kind of things. Because like, I, I do think that that plays a significant, uh, you know, exa- a, a significant contribution. You know, Rutchen's done it as well when he's been batting with Conway in the in the limited overs format. It feels like he gets a lot from having someone around who's able to kind of talk him through and, and really sort of not coach him because, you know, that would maybe be doing him a disservice, but being mm. there with him and, and I guess being that being the safety net that he can rely on when he's, when he's trying to work his way through the innings, because, you know, this is going to be a pretty serious test for him. Test cricket batting four against, you know, Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood, Lyon, you know, the, the, one of the best attacks in the world, one of the best attacks for the last 10 years. So, yeah, I think it's pretty key that Williamson has a good series and, and that that kind of flows on through the rest of our lineup. Isn't it super exciting to see the two number fours from each country go, yeah. go against each other in, in this series? Because both of them offer a little bit with the ball. Both of them mega talented individuals with huge, huge futures for both both of their countries. But we'll be facing stern tests against good bowling attacks, and we'll be facing you know situations where they're going to have to play innings of sub of substance and of, of heavy contribution. I think you're absolutely right with Rutchen. He benefits greatly from having a senior partner at the other end, whether it's Conway or Kane. I think that actually makes Daryl Mitchell a super important matchup for New Zealand particularly at the way that he and Phillips could potentially go after a Nathan Lyon and not let him settle into his length. If New Zealand are going to dominate Australia, I think Mitchell and Phillips in particular have to dominate Nathan Lyon. It might be a little bit harder with Rutchen, the ball traveling away from the left-hander. Lyon bowls pretty well to lefties. But I think those two guys in particular, Mitchell's ability to hit down the ground, uh, Phillips's ability to hit anywhere in that in that arc, um, 
could take Nathan Lyon off of his length. And if New Zealand are going to get on top of Australia at any point in this series, I think it's when Stark is straight or when he's wayward, New Zealand need to absolutely cash in. Uh, Latham, whoever it is, Kane absolutely must cash in. Will Young must cash in when Stark gets on his legs or gets wide. And I think as soon as Nathan Lyon comes on, if Daryl Mitchell is, is at the crease, he goes after Nathan Lyon and tries to hit him out of the tack and make Australia bowl Travis Head, make Australia bowl Cameron Green, make Australia find another option uh, to get through those overs and change Pat Cummins' plan A into plan B, C and D and let's see what he gets from there. Paul D, I'm getting excited. I'm getting excited hearing you talk about all of these matchups. Is there anyone else you want to highlight before we make some predictions and, and, and leave the show? I think we've mentioned everyone in both sides <laughs> except for Tom Blundell. So let's just give a shout-out to Tom Blundell. Um, big series for him, though. No, t- seriously, it's a big series for him because we talked about his legacy on the last pod we did. Um, he is going to be super important for New Zealand's hopes. Everyone's going to need to contribute with the bat. Tom Blundell is no exception to that. And whether or not you know you have a look at Tom Blundell's record in five, ten years' time and say he was a great cricketer for New Zealand or he was a good cricketer for New Zealand, I think a lot of that comes down to how he steps up in this important home series against Australia. Absolutely. Both the Toms, I think, are under a bit of pressure to, to perform in this series. Give me, give me your predictions. I mean, I, I know it, it's hard. I know always these predictions for mm. Australia. You, you're often, uh, you often lean towards the uh, the cautious in terms of their side. But we've just talked, uh, you know, about the high expectations and and uh, you know what the Australians expect from their side. What are you thinking in terms of scores and and in terms of kind of how the games might play out and and who will be the key players? I expect Australia to win two close test matches. I expect Australia to be in positions to win the game. I expect New Zealand to do what New Zealand do, drag the game deep, fight hard, put Australia under pressure. But I expect that this bowling lineup in particular should be good enough to beat New Zealand twice in two times of asking in the conditions that we're likely to see. Um, Actually, regardless of what the conditions look like, I think Australia's bowling attack should be good enough that they can bowl New Zealand out four times and put us in a position to succeed. So I expect Australia to win 2-0. I expect the test matches to be very, very close. I expect Australia to be under pressure a lot, particularly with the bat, but I expect our bowlers to come here and do the business. It's weird, eh? I I look at this Australian side and it feels very, they feel very beatable. I know I just said, you know, they, they're a side that is the world test, current World Test Championship. They hold all these trophies. But they yep. just lost a test at home to the West Indies, a side who've been struggling mm-hmm. for, for years to get their best team on the park. In 2020, in 2019, 2020, I felt so confident going into that series. But this time, even with the fact that Australia looks so beatable, I'm just finding it really hard to actually see the roadmap to a New Zealand win. I think that's what, is makes it so challenging. You know, I, I I think that we have flaws with our bowling attack with, you know, look, I, I think Willow Rourke's got a big, big future for New Zealand. I, I'm ex- really excited to see how he goes. But those, you know, he's playing his second test and he's going to be facing, you know, a big occasion, a really, really big occasion for him. We've got, you know, we're missing Devin Conway. We're missing Kyle Jamieson. We've got some players with with points to prove, and 
we just don't beat Australia. We just never do. So mm. as much as I don't think New Zealand are 2-0 worse than Australia, the fact that we just don't see drawn tests anymore means probably, unless there's weather around, and look, no one wants to predict weather you know, ruining a test and making it a draw, I think if the two tests go the distance, then probably 2-0 two, two Australia is the most likely result. I, I you know... I, I one million percent hope I'm wrong. I you know I think anyone listening to this podcast for for any length of time will know how committed I am to wanting New Zealand to perform well. But I I just think you know yeah really trying to dig down on on how we win these games. I don't really know. I think our best chance will be to bowl first to knock Australia off for a, for a you know two fifty in a first innings. And then, you know, try and play from in front for the rest of the test. But yeah, I think it's going to be pretty challenging. And I think as much as as much as a two test series doesn't really, you know, shouldn't really have much bearing on legacies and all of that kind of stuff, I, I do think this is really, really important in a lot of players New you know, in New Zealand's you know, the way we think about them, the way we think about this side, probably the way we're going to think about Gary Stead even. You know, this 100th test match, or this uh, second test match in the series, the Christchurch test, it's going to be Kane Williamson's 100th test and Tim Southey's 100th test if they both stay fit for that. Like These are going to be huge occasions with full crowds for both games. Yeah, I think we need to see a big performance, but I just don't know where we get the wins. The thing I think that will make the difference, we had a look at the India-England series and I jokingly said that whoever gets a double hundred in the test match wins the test match because that's how the kind of pattern went in the first three test matches in that series. For me here in this series, it's whichever side can take five for 70 more often. Mm. If New Zealand or Australia can take blocks of wickets and prevent partnerships building, particularly if they can go through the middle order pretty cheaply, those, I think, are the, are the sessions, the hours, the half hours, half hours of play that will go a long way to deciding the series. Clumps of wickets um, and or the, the, the reverse building partnerships, I think, is the blueprint for both New Zealand and Australia to get on top in this series because we know that it's going to uh, be a game of swings and roundabouts. The fortunes will reverse multiple times. It'll be like a game of Uno out there. It'll be lots of reverse, lots of skip bow. Um, <laughs> but I think really... It's whichever side can put together partnerships and can show some real grit and metal to get through tough times will go a long way to winning the series. And, you know, just finally to add to that, I think New Zealand's got to, when they get the bit between their teeth, they have to go at this Australian side. They have to, like, you know, we just talked about all of the, the losses and the, I think New Zealanders, you know, we do have that, like, expectation that, you know, deep down that we will lose to Australia in cricket. It's sort of just always been there. But there are some fresh faces in the side. And guys like Glenn Phillips, guys like Daryl Mitchell, who don't take a backward step. We've just seen someone who definitely doesn't take a backward step in, in Neil Wagner step away from this side. I think, you know, that it's so crucial that when they get those opportunities, they have to ram home the advantage and really put Australia under pressure because we saw against the West Indies when Australia is put under pressure, there is opportunities to beat this side. Baldy, unless you've got anything no. else to add, I think nope, we nothing we're, further, Your Honour. Let's close and uh, let's 
touch gloves and look forward to another couple of weeks of really ding-dong battle test cricket. I can't wait for the game to start tomorrow. I'll be hiding in a corner uh, <laughs> with my fingers over my eyes. I'll be forced to sit and Binksy is going to prop my eyes open with a couple of toothpicks for that duration of that Hagley test to make me watch every ball. Uh, but I am genuinely looking forward to this contest. It's going to be so much fun. And yeah, look, we're, we're going to be down there at Hagley for the second test. So if you're, if you're going to be around, give us a shout. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely be keen to, to say hello to any listeners while we are down there. But that's us for tonight. Enjoy the test series. Thanks very much for tuning in with us. And uh, we'll see you all again very, very soon.